Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 29 of Far From The Madding Crowd This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines Far From The Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy Chapter 29 Particulars of a Twilight Walk we now see the element of folly distinctly mingling with the many varying particulars which made up the character of Bathsheba Everdeen. It was almost foreign to her intrinsic nature. Introduced as lymph on the dart of Eros, it eventually permeated and coloured her whole constitution. Bathsheba, though she had too much understanding to be entirely governed by her womanliness, had too much womanliness to use her understanding to the best advantage. Perhaps in no minor point does woman astonish her helpmate more than in the strange power she possesses of believing cajoleries that she knows to be false, except, indeed, in that of being utterly sceptical on strictures that she knows to be true. Bathsheba loved Troy in the way that only self-reliant women love when they abandon their self-reliance. When a strong woman recklessly throws away her strength, she is worse than a weak woman who has never had any strength to throw away. One source of her inadequacy is the novelty of the occasion. She has never had practice in making the best of such a condition. Weakness is doubly weak by being new. Bathsheba was not conscious of guile in this matter. Although in one sense a woman of the world, it was, after all, that world of daylight coteries and green carpets wherein cattle form the passing crowd and winds the busy hum where a quiet family of rabbits or hares lives on the other side of your party wall, where your neighbour is everybody in the tithing, and where calculation is confined to market-days. Of the fabricated tastes of good fashionable society she knew but little, and of the formulated self-indulgence of bad nothing at all. Had her utmost thoughts in this direction been distinctly worded, and by herself they never were, they would have amounted to such a matter as that she felt her impulses to be pleasanter guides than her discretion. Her love was entire as a child's, and though as warm as summer, it was fresh as spring. Her culpability lay in her making no attempt to control feeling by subtle and careful inquiry into consequences. She could show others the steep and thorny way, but wrecked not her own reed and Troy's deformities lay deep down from a woman's vision, whilst his embellishments were upon the very surface, thus contrasting with homely oak, whose defects were patent to the blindest, and whose virtues were as metals in a mine. The difference between love and respect was markedly shown in her conduct. Bathsheba had spoken of her interest in Boldwood with the greatest freedom to Liddy, but she had only communed with her own heart concerning Troy. All this infatuation Gabriel saw, and was troubled thereby from the time of his daily journey afield to the time of his return, and on to the small hours of many a night. That he was not beloved had hitherto been his great sorrow. That Bathsheba was getting into the toils was now a sorrow greater than the first, and one which nearly obscured it. 
It was a result which paralleled the oft-quoted observation of Hippocrates concerning physical pains. That is a noble, though perhaps an unpromising love, which not even the fear of breeding aversion in the bosom of the one beloved can deter from combating his or her errors. Oak determined to speak to his mistress. He would base his appeal on what he considered her unfair treatment of Farmer Boldwood, now absent from home. An opportunity occurred one evening when she had gone for a short walk by a path through the neighbouring cornfields. It was dusk when Oak, who had not been far afield that day, took the same path and met her returning, quite pensively as he thought. The wheat was now tall and the path was narrow. Thus the way was quite a sunken groove between the embrowning thicket on either side. Two persons could not walk abreast without damaging the crop, and Oak stood aside to let her pass. "'Oh, is it Gabriel?' she said. "'You are taking a walk, too. Good night.' "'I thought I would come to meet you, as it is rather late,' said Oak, turning and following at her heels when she had brushed somewhat quickly by him. "'Thank you, indeed, but I am not very fearful.' "'Oh, no, but there are bad characters about.' "'I never meet them.' Now Oak, with marvellous ingenuity, had been going to introduce the gallant sergeant through the channel of bad characters. But all at once the scheme broke down. It suddenly occurring to him that this was rather a clumsy way, and too barefaced to begin with. He tried another preamble. As the man who would naturally come to meet you is away from home too, I, I mean Farmer Boldwood, why, thinks I, I'll go, said he. Ah, yes. She walked on without turning her head, and for many steps nothing further was heard from her quarter than the rustle of her dress against the heavy corn-ears. Then she resumed rather tartly. "'I don't quite understand what you meant by saying that Mr. Boldwood would naturally come to meet me.' "'I mean, on account of the wedding which they say is likely to take place between you and him, miss. Uh, forgive my speaking plainly.' "'They say what is not true,' she returned quickly. "'No marriage is likely to take place between us.' Gabriel now put forth his unobscured opinion, for the moment had come. "'Well, Miss Everdeen,' he said, "'putting aside what people say, "'I never in my life saw any courting "'if his is not a courting of you.' Bathsheba would probably have terminated the conversation there and then by flatly forbidding the subject, had not her conscious weakness of position allured her to falter and argue in endeavours to better it. "'Since this subject has been mentioned,' she said very emphatically, I am glad of the opportunity of clearing up a mistake which is very common and very provoking. I didn't definitely promise Mr. Boldwood anything. I have never cared for him. I respect him, and he has urged me to marry him, but I have given him no distinct answer. As soon as he returns I shall do so, and the answer will be that I cannot think of marrying him. People are full of mistakes, seemingly. They are. The other day they said you were trifling with him, and you almost proved that you were not. Lately they have said that you be not, and you straightway begin to show. Uh, that I am, I suppose you mean? Well, I hope they speak the truth. They do, but wrongly applied. I don't trifle with him, but then I have nothing to do with him. Oak was unfortunately led on to speak of Boldwood's rival in a wrong tone to her after all. "'I wish you had never met that young Sergeant Troy, miss,' he sighed. 
Bathsheba's steps became faintly spasmodic. "'Why?' she asked. "'He is not good enough for ye.' "'Did anyone tell you to speak to me like this?' "'Nobody at all.' "'Then it appears to me that Sergeant Troy does not concern us here,' she said intractably. "'Yet I must say that Sergeant Troy is an educated man, and quite worthy of any woman. He is well born.' "'His being higher in learning and birth than the ruck of soldiers is anything but a proof of his worth. It shows his course to be downward.' "'I cannot see what this has to do with our conversation.' Mr. Troy's course is not by any means downward, and his superiority is a proof of his worth. I believe him to have no conscience at all, and I cannot help begging you, miss, to have nothing to do with him. Listen to me this once, only this once. I don't say he is such a bad man as I have fancied. I pray to God he is not. But since we don't exactly know what he is, why not behave as if he might be bad, simply for your own safety?' Don't trust him, mistress. I ask you not to trust him so. Why, pray? I like soldiers, but this one I do not like, he said sturdily. His cleverness in his calling may have tempted him astray, and what is mirth to the neighbours is ruin to the woman. When he tries to talk to me again, why not turn away with a short good day, and when you see him coming one way, turn the other? When he says anything laughable, Fail to see the point, and don't smile, and speak of him before those who will report your talk as that fantastical man, or that Sergeant What's-his-name, that a man of family that has come to the dogs. Don't be unmannerly towards him, but harmlessly uncivil, and so get rid of the man. No Christmas robin detained by a window-pane ever pulsed as did Bathsheba now. I say, I say again, that it doesn't become you to talk about him. Why he should be mentioned passes me quite, she exclaimed desperately. I know this, that that he is a thoroughly conscientious man, and blunt sometimes even to rudeness, but always speaking his mind about you plain to your face. Oh! He is as good as anybody in this parish. He is very particular, too, about going to church. Yes, he is. I am afraid nobody ever saw him there. I never did, certainly. The reason of that is, she said eagerly, that he goes in privately by the old tower door, just when the service commences, and sits at the back of the gallery. He told me so. This supreme instance of Troy's goodness fell upon Gabriel's ears like the thirteenth stroke of a crazy clock. It was not only received with utter incredulity as regarded itself, but threw doubt on all the assurances that had preceded it. Oak was grieved to find how entirely she trusted him. He brimmed with deep feeling as he replied in a steady voice, the steadiness of which was spoilt by the palpableness of his great effort to keep it so. "'You know, mistress, that I love you, and shall love you always. I only mention this to bring to your mind that, at any rate, I would wish to do you no harm. Beyond that I put it aside.' I have lost in the race for money and good things, and I am not such a fool as to pretend to eat now that I am poor, and you have got altogether above me. But Bathsheba, dear mistress, this I beg you to consider, that both to keep yourself well honoured among the work-folk, and in common generosity to an honourable man who loves you as well as I, you should be more discreet in your bearings towards this soldier. Don't, don't, don't! she exclaimed in a choking voice. 
Are ye not more to me than my own affairs, and even life?' he went on. "'Come, listen to me. I am six years older than you, and Mr. Boldwood is ten years older than I. And consider, I do beg of ye to consider, before it is too late, how safe you would be in his hands.' Oak's allusion to his own love for her lessened, to some extent, her anger at his interference. But she could not really forgive him for letting his wish to marry her be eclipsed by his wish to do her good any more than for his slighting treatment of Troy. "'I wish you to go elsewhere,' she commanded, a paleness of face invisible to the eye being suggested by the trembling words. "'Do not remain on this farm any longer. I don't want you. I beg you to go.' "'That's nonsense,' said Oak calmly. "'This is the second time you've pretended to dismiss me. And what's the use of it?' "'Pretended? You shall go, sir.' Your lecturing I will not hear. I am mistress here. Go, indeed. What folly will you say next? Treating me like Dick, Tom, and Harry, when you know that a short time ago my position was as good as yours? Upon my life, Bathsheba, it is too barefaced. You know, too, that I can't go without putting things in such a strait as you wouldn't get out of I can't tell when. Unless, indeed, you'll promise to have an understanding man as bailiff or manager or something. I'll go at once, if you promise that." "'I shall have no bailiff. I shall continue to be my own manager,' she said decisively. "'Very well, then. You shall be thankful to me for biding. How would the farm go on with nobody to mind it but a woman? But mind this, I don't wish ye to feel you owe me anything. Not I. What I do, I do. Sometimes I say I shall be as glad as a bird to leave the place, for I don't suppose I am content to be a nobody. I was made for better things. However, I don't like to see your concerns going to ruin, as they must if you keep in this mind. I hate taking my own measure so plain, but upon my life your provoking ways make a man say what he wouldn't dream of at other times. I own to be rather interfering, but you know well enough how it is, and who she is that I like too well, and feel too much like a fool about to be civil to her. It is more than probable that she privately and unconsciously respected him a little for this grim fidelity, which had been shown in his tone even more than in his words. At any rate, she murmured something to the effect that he might stay if he wished. She said more distinctly, "'Will you leave me alone now? I don't order it as a mistress. I ask it as a woman, and I expect you not to be so uncourteous as to refuse.' "'Certainly I will, Miss Everdeen,' said Gabriel gently. He wondered that the request should have come at this moment, for the strife was over, and they were on a most desolate hill, far from every human habitation, and the hour was getting late. He stood still and allowed her to get far ahead of him, till he could only see her form upon the sky. A distressing explanation of this anxiety to be rid of him at that point now ensued. A figure apparently rose from the earth beside her. The shape beyond all doubt was Troy's. Oak would not be even a possible listener, and at once turned back till a good two hundred yards were between the lovers and himself. Gabriel went home by way of the churchyard. In passing the tower he thought of what she had said about the sergeant's virtuous habit of entering the church unperceived at the beginning of service. Believing that the little gallery door alluded to was quite disused, he ascended the external flight of steps at the top of which it stood, and examined it. 
The pale lustre yet hanging in the north-western heaven was sufficient to show that a sprig of ivy had grown from the wall, across the door to a length of more than a foot, delicately tying the panel to the stone jamb. It was a decisive proof that the door had not been opened at least since Troy came back to Weatherbury. End of chapter 29《Chapter Thirty of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Thirty. Hot Cheeks and Tearful Eyes. Half an hour later, Bathsheba entered her own house. There burnt upon her face when she met the light of the candles the flush and excitement which were a little less than chronic with her now. The farewell words of Troy, who had accompanied her to the very door, still lingered in her ears. He had bidden her adieu for two days, which were, so he stated, to be spent at Bath in visiting some friends. He had also kissed her a second time. It is only fair to Bathsheba to explain here a little fact which did not come to light till a long time afterwards, that Troy's presentation of himself so aptly at the roadside this evening was not by any distinctly preconcerted arrangement. He had hinted, she had forbidden, and it was only on the chance of his still coming that she had dismissed Oak, fearing a meeting between them just then. She now sank down into a chair, wild and perturbed by all these new and fevering sequences. Then she jumped up with a manner of decision, and fetched her desk from a side table. In three minutes, without pause or modification, she had written a letter to Boldwood, at his address beyond Casterbridge, saying, mildly but firmly, that she had well considered the whole subject he had brought before her, and kindly given her time to decide upon that her final decision was that she could not marry him. She had expressed to Oak an intention to wait till Boldwood came home before communicating to him her conclusive reply, but Bathsheba found that she could not wait. It was impossible to send the letter till the next day, yet to quell her uneasiness by getting it out of her hands, and so, as it were, setting the act in motion at once, she arose to take it to any one of the women who might be in the kitchen. She paused in the passage. A dialogue was going on in the kitchen, and Bathsheba and Troy were the subject of it. "'If he marry her, she'll give up farming. "'Twill be a gallant life, but may bring some trouble between the mert, so say I. "'Well, I wish I had half such husband.' Bathsheba had too much sense to mind seriously what her servitor said about her, but too much womanly redundance of speech to leave alone what was said, till it had died the natural death of unminded things. She burst in upon them. "'Who are you speaking of?' she asked. There was a pause before anybody replied. At last Liddy said frankly, "'What was passing was a bit of a word about yourself, miss?' "'I thought so. Mary Ann and Liddy and Temperance. Now I forbid you to suppose such things. You know I don't care the least for Mr. Troy, not I.' "'Everybody knows how much I hate him.' "'Yes,' repeated the forward young person. "'Hate him.' "'We know you do, miss,' said Liddy, "'and so do we all.' "'I hate him, too,' said Mary Ann. "'Mary Ann! Oh, you perjured woman!' "'How can you speak that wicked story?' said Bathsheba, excitedly. 
You admired him from your heart only this morning in the very world. You did. Yes, Marianne, you know it. Yes, miss, but so did you. He's a wild scamp now, and you are right to hate him. He is not a wild scamp. How dare you to my face? I have no right to hate him, nor you, nor anybody. But I am a silly woman. What is it to me what he is? You know it is nothing. I don't care for him. I don't mean to defend his good name, not I. Mind this, if any of you say a word against him, you'll be dismissed instantly. She flung down the letter and surged back into the parlour, with a big heart and tearful eyes, Liddy following her. "'Oh, miss,' said mild Liddy, looking pitifully into Bathsheba's face, "'I am sorry we mistook you. I did think you cared for him, but I see you don't now.' "'Shut the door, Liddy.' Liddy closed the door and went on. "'People always say such foolery, miss. I'll make answer henceforth. Of course a lady like Miss Everdeen can't love him. I'll say it out in plain black and white.' Bathsheba burst out. "'Oh, Liddy, are you such a simpleton? Can't you read riddles? Can't you see? Are you a woman yourself?' Liddy's clear eyes rounded with wonderment. "'Yes, you must be a blind thing, Liddy.' she said in reckless abandonment and grief. "'Oh, I love him, to very distraction and misery and agony. Don't be frightened at me, though perhaps I am enough to frighten any innocent woman. Come closer, closer.' She put her arms around Liddy's neck. "'I must let it out to somebody. It is wearing me away. Don't you yet know enough of me to see through that miserable denial of mine? Oh, God, what a lie it was! Heaven and my love, forgive me.' And don't you know that a woman who loves at all thinks nothing of perjury when it is balanced against her love? There, go out of the room. I want to be quite alone. Liddy went towards the door. Liddy, come here. Solemnly swear to me that he's not a fast man, that it is all lies they say about him. But, miss, how can I say he is not if— You graceless girl! How can you have the cruel heart to repeat what they say? Unfeeling thing that you are! "'But I'll see if you or anybody else in the village, or town either, dare do such a thing.' She started off, pacing from the fireplace to door and back again. "'No, miss, I don't—I I know it's not true,' said Liddy, frightened at Bathsheba's unwanted vehemence. "'I suppose you only agree with me like that to please me. But, Liddy, he cannot be bad, as is said. Do you hear?' "'Yes, miss, yes. And you don't believe he is?' "'I don't know what to say, miss,' said Liddy, beginning to cry. "'If I say no, you don't believe me. "'If I say yes, you rage at me.' "'Say you don't believe it. "'Say you don't.' "'I don't believe him, to be so bad as they make out.' "'He is not bad at all. "'My poor life and heart, how weak I am,' she moaned in a relaxed, desultory way, heedless of Liddy's presence. "'Oh, how I wish I had never seen him!' Loving is misery for women always. I shall never forgive God for making me a woman, and dearly I am beginning to pay for the honour of owning a pretty face. She freshened and turned to Liddy suddenly. Mind this, Liddy Smallbury. If you repeat anywhere a single word of what I have said to you inside these closed doors, I'll never trust you or love you, or have you with me a moment longer. Not a moment. I don't want to repeat anything, said Liddy, with womanly dignity of a diminutive order. "'but I don't wish to stay with you. "'And if you please, I'll go at the end of the harvest, "'or this week, or to-day. 
I don't see that I deserve to be put upon and stormed at for nothing,' concluded the small woman, bigly. "'No, no, Liddy, you must stay,' said Bathsheba, dropping from haughtiness to entreaty with capricious inconsequence. "'You must not notice my being in a taking just now. You are not as a servant. You are a companion to me. Dear, dear, I don't know what I am doing since this miserable ache of my heart has waited and worn upon me so. What shall I come to? I suppose I shall get further and further into troubles. I wonder sometimes if I am doomed to die in the Union. I am friendless enough, God knows.' "'I won't notice anything, nor will I leave you,' sobbed Liddy impulsively, putting her lips to Bathsheba's and kissing her. Then Bathsheba kissed Liddy, and all was smooth again. "'I don't often cry, do I, Liddy? But you have made tears come into my eyes,' she said, a smile shining through the moisture. "'Try to think I'm a good man, won't you, dear Liddy?' "'I will, miss, indeed. He is a sort of steady man in a wild way, you know.' that's better than to be as some are wild in a steady way i'm afraid that's how i am and promise me to keep my secret do liddy and do not let them know that i have been crying about him because it will be dreadful for me and no good to him poor thing that's head himself shattering for me mistress if i've a mind to keep anything and i'll always be your friend replied Liddy emphatically, at the same time bringing a few more tears into her own eyes, not from any particular necessity, but from an artistic sense of making herself in keeping with the remainder of the picture, which seems to influence women at such times. "'I think God likes us to be good friends, don't you?' "'Indeed I do. And, dear miss, you won't harry me and storm at me, will you? Because you seem to swell as tall as a lion then, and it frightens me. Do you know?' I fancy you would be a match for any man when you're in one of your takings. Never, do you? said Bathsheba, slightly laughing, though somewhat seriously alarmed by this Amazonian picture of herself. I hope I am not a bold sort of maid. Manish, she continued with some anxiety. Oh, no, not manish, but so almighty womanish that tis getting on that way sometimes. Ah, miss! she said, after having drawn her breath very sadly in, and sent it very sadly out, "'I wish I had half your failing in that way. "'Tis a great protection to a poor maid in these illegitimate days.'" End of chapter 30「Chapter 31 of Far From the Madding Crowd This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy Chapter 31 Blame Fury The next evening Bathsheba, with the idea of getting out of the way of Mr. Boldwood in the event of his returning to answer her note in person, proceeded to fulfil an engagement made with Liddy some few hours earlier. Bathsheba's companion, as a gauge of their reconciliation, had been granted a week's holiday to visit her sister who was married to a thriving hurdler and cattle-crib-maker, living in a delightful labyrinth of hazel-cops not far beyond Yalbury. The arrangement was that Miss Everdeen should honour them by coming there for a day or two to inspect some ingenious contrivances which this man of the woods had introduced into his wares. Leaving her instructions with Gabriel and Mary Ann, that they were to see everything carefully locked up for the night, she went out of the house just at the close of a timely thunder-shower, 
which had refined the air, and daintily bathed the coat of the land, though all beneath was dry as ever. Freshness was exhaled in an essence from the varied contours of bank and hollow, as if the earth breathed maiden breath, and the pleased birds were hymning to the scene. Before her, among the clouds, there was a contrast in the shape of layers of fierce light which show themselves in the neighbourhood of a hidden sun, lingering on to the farthest northwest corner of the heavens that this midsummer season allowed. She had walked nearly two miles of her journey, watching how the day was retrieving, and thinking how the time of deeds was quietly melting into the time of thought, to give place in its turn to the time of prayer and sleep, when she beheld advancing over Yalbury Hill the very man she sought so anxiously to elude. Boldwood was stepping on, not with that quiet tread of reserved strength which was his customary gait, in which he always seemed to be balancing two thoughts. His manner was stunned and sluggish now. Boldwood had, for the first time, been awakened to woman's privileges in tergiversation, even when it involves another person's possible blight. That Bathsheba was a firm and positive girl, far less inconsequent than her fellows, had been the very lung of his hope, for he had held that these qualities would lead her to adhere to a straight course for consistency's sake, and accept him, though her fancy might not flood him with the iridescent hues of uncritical love. But the argument now came back as sorry gleams from a broken mirror. The discovery was no less a scourge than a surprise. He came on looking upon the ground, and did not see Bathsheba till they were less than a stone's throw apart. He looked up at the sound of her pit-pat, and his changed appearance sufficiently denoted to her the depth and strength of the feeling paralysed by her letter. "'Oh, is it you, Mr. Boldwood?' she faltered, a guilty warmth pulsing in her face. "'Those who have the power of reproaching in silence may find it a means more effective than words.' There are accents in the eye which are not on the tongue, and more tales come from pale lips than can enter an ear. It is both the grandeur and the pain of the remoter moods that they avoid the pathway of sound. A Boldwood's look was unanswerable. Seeing she turned a little aside, he said, "'What? Are you afraid of me?' "'Why should you say that?' said Bathsheba. "'I fancied you looked so,' he said and it is most strange because of its contrast with my feeling for you." She regained self-possession, fixed her eyes calmly, and waited. "'You know what that feeling is,' continued Boldwood deliberately. "'A thing as strong as death. No dismissal by a hasty letter affects that.' "'I wish you did not feel so strongly about me,' she murmured. "'It is generous of you, and more than I deserve, but I must not hear it now.' "'Hear it? What do you think I have to say, then? I am not to marry you, and that is enough. Your letter was excellently plain. I want you to hear nothing, not I.' Bathsheba was unable to direct her will into any definite groove for freeing herself from this fearfully awkward position. She confusedly said, "'Good evening,' and was moving on. Boldwood walked up to her, heavily and dully. "'Bathsheba, darling, is it final indeed?' "'Indeed it is.' "'O oh, Bathsheba, have pity upon me,' Boldwood burst out. "'God's sake! Yes, I am come to that low, lowest stage, to ask a woman for pity. Still she is you, she is you.' 
Bathsheba commanded herself well, but she could hardly get a clear voice for what came instinctively to her lips. There is little honour to the woman in that speech. It was only whispered, for something unutterably mournful, no less than distressing in this spectacle of a man, showing himself to be so entirely the vein of a passion, enervated the feminine instinct for punctilious. "'I am beyond myself about this, and am mad,' he said. "'I am no stoic at all to be supplicating here, but I do supplicate to you. I wish you knew what is in me of devotion to you, but it is impossible that—' In bare human mercy to a lonely man. Don't throw me off now. I don't throw you off. Indeed, how can I? I never had you. In her noon-clear sense that she had never loved him, she forgot for a moment her thoughtless angle on that day in February. But there was a time when you turned to me, before I thought of you. I don't reproach you, for even now I feel that the ignorant and cold darkness that I should have lived in, if you had not attracted me by that letter—valentine, you call it—would have been worse than my knowledge of you, though it has brought this misery. But, I say, there was a time when I knew nothing of you, and cared nothing for you, and yet you drew me on. And if you say you gave me no encouragement, I cannot but contradict you. What you call encouragement was the childish game of an idle minute. I have bitterly repented of it, ay, bitterly, and in tears. Can you still go on reminding me? I don't accuse you of it. I deplore it. I took for earnest what you insist was jest, and now this that I pray to be jest you say is awful, wretched earnest. Our moods meet at wrong places. I wish your feeling was more like mine, or my feeling more like yours. Oh, could I but have foreseen the torture that trifling trick was going to lead me into! How I should have cursed you! But only having been able to see it since, I cannot do that, for I love you too well. But it is weak, idle, drivelling to go on like this. Bathsheba, you are the first woman of any shade or nature that I have ever looked at to love, and it is the having been so near claiming you for my own that makes this denial so hard to bear. How nearly you promised me! But I don't speak now to move your heart, and make you grieve because of my pain. It is no use, that. I must bear it. My pain would get no less by paining you. But I do pity you, deeply, oh so deeply, she earnestly said. Do no such thing, do no such thing. Your dear love, Bathsheba, is such a vast thing beside your pity, that the loss of your pity as well as your love is no great addition to my sorrow, nor does the gain of your pity make it sensibly less. Oh, sweet! How dearly you spoke to me behind the spear-bed at the washing-pool, and in the barn at the shearing, and that dearest last time in the evening at your home! Where are your pleasant words all gone, your earnest hope to be able to love me? Where is your firm conviction that you would get to care for me very much? Really forgotten? Really? She checked emotion, looked him quietly and clearly in the face, and said in a low, firm voice, Mr. Boldwood, I promised you nothing. Would you have had me a woman of clay when you paid me that furthest, highest compliment a man can pay to a woman, telling her he loves her? I was bound to show some feeling, if I would not be a graceless shrew. Yet each of those pleasures was just for the day, the day just for the pleasure. How was I to know that what is a pastime to all other men was death to you? Have reason, do, and think more kindly of me. Well, never mind arguing, never mind. One thing is sure, 
You were all but mine, and now you are not nearly mine. Everything is changed, and that by you alone, remember. You were nothing to me once, and I was contented. You are now nothing to me again, and how different the second nothing is from the first. Would to God you had never taken me up, since it was only to throw me down. Bathsheba, in spite of her mettle, began to feel unmistakable signs that she was inherently the weaker vessel. She strove miserably against this femininity which would insist upon supplying unbidden emotions in stronger and stronger current. She had tried to elude agitation by fixing her mind on the trees, sky, any trivial object before her eyes, whilst his reproaches fell, but ingenuity could not save her now. "'I did not take you up. Surely I did not,' she answered as heroically as she could. "'But don't be in this mood with me. I can endure being told I am in the wrong, if you will only tell me it gently. Oh, sir, will you not kindly forgive me, and look at it cheerfully?' Cheerfully. Can a man, fooled to utter heart-burning, find a reason for being merry? If I have lost, how can I be as if I had won? Heavens, you must be heartless, quite. Had I known what a fearfully bitter-sweet this was to be, how I would have avoided you, and never seen you, and been deaf of you. I tell you all this, but what do you care? You don't care." She returned silent and weak denials to his charges, and swayed her head desperately, as if to thrust away the words as they came showering about her ears from the lips of the trembling man in the climax of life, with his bronzed Roman face and fine frame. "'Dearest, dearest, I am wavering even now between the two opposites of recklessly renouncing you, and labouring humbly for you again. Forget that you have said no, and let it be as it was.' Say, Bathsheba, that you only wrote that refusal to me in fun. Come, say it to me. It would be untrue, and painful to both of us. You overrate my capacity for love. I don't possess half the warmth of nature you believe me to have. An unprotected childhood in a cold world has beaten gentleness out of me. He immediately said with more resentment, That may be true, somewhat, but ah, Miss Everdeen, it won't do as a reason. You are not the cold woman you would have me believe. No, no, it isn't because you have no feeling in you that you don't love me. You naturally would have me think so. You would hide from me that you have a burning heart like mine. You have love enough, but it is turned into a new channel. I know where. The swift music of her heart became hubbub now, and she throbbed to extremity. He was coming to Troy. He did then know what had occurred and the name fell from his lips the next moment. "'Why did Troy not leave my treasure alone?' he asked fiercely. "'When I had no thought of injuring him, why did he force himself upon your notice? Before he worried you, your inclination was to have me. When next I should have come to you, your answer would have been yes. Can you deny it? I ask, can you deny it?' She delayed the reply, but was too honest to withhold it. "'I cannot,' she whispered. I know you cannot, but he stole in in my absence and robbed me. Why didn't he win you away before, when nobody would have been grieved, when nobody would have been set tail-bearing? Now the people sneer at me, the very hills and sky seem to laugh at me till I blush shamefully for my folly. I have lost my respect, my good name, my standing, lost it, never to get it again. Go and marry your man. Go on. Oh, sir, Mr. Boldwood! 
"'You may as well. I have no further claim upon you. As for me, I had better go somewhere alone, and hide, and pray. I loved a woman once. I am now ashamed. When I am dead, they'll say, miserable, love-sick man that he was. Heaven, heaven, and if I got jilted secretly, and the dishonour was not known, and my position kept. But no matter, it is gone, and the woman not gained. Shame upon him, shame. His unreasonable anger terrified her, and she glided from him without obviously moving, as she said, "'I am only a girl. Do not speak to me so.' "'All the time you knew, how very well you knew, that your new freak was my misery. Dazzled by brass and scarlet, O oh Bathsheba, this is woman's folly indeed.' She fired up at once. "'You are taking too much upon yourself,' she said vehemently. "'Everybody is upon me, everybody.' It is unmanly to attack a woman so. I have nobody in the world to fight my battles for me, but no mercy is shown. Yet if a thousand of you sneer and say things against me, I will not be put down." "'You'll chatter with him, doubtless, about me. You say to him, Boldwood would have died for me. Yes, and you have given way to him, knowing him not to be the man for you. He has kissed you, claimed you as his. Do you hear? He has kissed you. Deny it. The most tragic woman is cowed by a tragic man, and although Boldwood was, in vehemence and glow, nearly her own self rendered into another sex, Bathsheba's cheek quivered. She gasped, "'Leave me, sir, leave me. I am nothing to you. Let me go on.' "'Deny that he has kissed you.' "'I shall not.' "'Ah, he has, then,' came hoarsely from the farmer. "'He has.' she said slowly, and, in spite of her fear, defiantly, "'I am not ashamed to speak the truth.' "'Then curse him, and curse him,' said Boldwood, breaking into a whispered fury. "'Whilst I would have given worlds to touch your hand, you have let a rake come in without rite or ceremony, and kiss you. Heaven's mercy kiss you. Ah, a time of his life shall come when he will have to repent, and think wretchedly of the pain he has caused another man.' And then may he ache and wish and curse and yearn, as I do now. "'Don't! Don't! Oh, don't pray down evil upon him!' she implored in a miserable cry. "'Anything but that! Anything! Oh, be kind to him, sir, for I love him true!' Boulder's ideas had reached that point of fusion at which outline and consistency entirely disappear. The impending night appeared to concentrate in his eye. He did not hear her at all now. "'I'll punish him, by my soul that I will. I'll meet him, soldier or no, and I'll horsewhip the untimely stripling for his reckless theft of my one delight. If he were a hundred men, I'd horsewhip him.' He dropped his voice suddenly and unnaturally. "'Bathsheba, sweet lost coquette, pardon me. I have been blaming you, threatening you, behaving like a churl to you, whilst he is the greatest sinner.' He stole your dear heart away with his unfathomable lies. It is a fortunate thing for him that he has gone back to his regiment, that he's away up the country and not here. I hope he may not return here just yet. I pray God he may not come into my sight, for I may be tempted beyond myself. Oh, Bathsheba, keep him away, yes, keep him away from me. For a moment Boldwood stood so inertly after this that his soul seemed to have been entirely exhaled with the breath of his passionate words. He turned his face away, and withdrew, 
and his form was soon covered over by the twilight as his footsteps mixed in with the low hiss of the leafy trees. Bathsheba, who had been standing motionless as a model all this latter time, flung her hands to her face, and wildly attempted to ponder on the exhibition which had just passed away. Such astounding wells of fevered feeling in a still man like Mr. Boldwood were incomprehensible, dreadful. Instead of being a man trained to repression, he was what she had seen him. The force of the farmer's threats lay in their relation to a circumstance known at present only to herself. Her lover was coming back to Weatherbury in the course of the very next day or two. Troy had not returned to his distant barracks, as Boldwood and others supposed, but had merely gone to visit some acquaintance in Bath, and had yet a week or more remaining to his furlough. She felt wretchedly certain that, if he revisited her, just at this nick of time, and came into contact with Boldwood, a fierce quarrel would be the consequence. She panted with solicitude when she thought of possible injury to Troy. The least spark would kindle the farmer's swift feelings of rage and jealousy. He would lose his self-mastery, as he had this evening. Troy's blindness might become aggressive, it might take the direction of derision, and Boldwood's anger might then take the direction of revenge. With almost a morbid dread of being thought a gushing girl, this guileless woman, too well concealed from the world under a manner of carelessness, the warm depths of her strong emotions. But now there was no reserve. In her distraction, instead of advancing further, she walked up and down, beating the air with her fingers, pressing on her brow, and sobbing brokenly to herself. Then she sat down on a heap of stones by the wayside to think. There she remained long. Above the dark margin of the earth appeared foreshores and promontories of coppery cloud, bounding a green and pellucid expanse in the western sky. Amaranthine glosses came over them then, and the unresting world wheeled her round to a contrasting prospect eastward, in the shape of indecisive and palpitating stars. She gazed upon their silent throes amid the shades of space, but realised none at all. Her troubled spirit was far away with Troy. End of chapter 31 Chapter thirty two of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter thirty two. Night. Horses tramping. The village of Weatherbury was quiet as the graveyard in its midst, and the living were lying well nigh as still as the dead. The church clock struck eleven. The air was so empty of other sounds that the whirr of the clockwork immediately before the strokes was distinct, and so was the click of the same at their close. The notes flew forth with the usual blind obtuseness of inanimate things, flapping and rebounding among walls, undulating against the scattered clouds, spreading through their interstices into unexplored miles of space. Bathsheba's crannied and mouldy walls were to-night occupied only by Mary Ann, Liddy being, as was stated, with her sister, whom Bathsheba had set out to visit. A few minutes after eleven had struck, Mary Ann turned in her bed, with a sense of being disturbed. She was totally unconscious of the nature of the interruption to her sleep. It led to a dream, and the dream to an awakening, with an uneasy sensation that something had happened. She left her bed and looked out of the window. 
The paddock abutted on this end of the building, and in the paddock she could just discern by the uncertain grey a moving figure approaching the horse that was feeding there. The figure seized the horse by the forelock and led it to the corner of the field. Here she could see some object which circumstances proved to be a vehicle, for after a few minutes spent apparently in harnessing she heard the trot of the horse down the road, mingled with the sound of light wheels. Two varieties only of humanity could have entered the paddock with the ghost-like glide of that mysterious figure. They were a woman and a gypsy man. A woman was out of the question in such an occupation at this hour, and the comer could be no less than a thief, who might probably have known the weakness of the household on this particular night, and have chosen it on that account for his daring attempt. Moreover, to raise suspicion to conviction itself, there were gypsies in Weatherbury Bottom. Marianne, who had been afraid to shout in the robber's presence, having seen him depart, had no fear. She hastily slipped on her clothes, stumped down the disjointed staircase with its hundred creaks, ran to Coggins, the nearest house, and raised an alarm. Coggan called Gabriel, who now again lodged in his house as at first, and together they went to the paddock. Beyond all doubt the horse was gone. "'Hark!' said Gabriel. They listened. Distinct upon the stagnant air came the sounds of a trotting horse, passing up Long Puddle Lane, just beyond the gypsies' encampment in Weatherbury Bottom. "'That's our dainty. I'll swear to our step,' said Jan. "'Mighty me! Won't Mrs. Stormont call us stupids when she comes back?' moaned Mary Ann. "'How I wish it had happened when she was at home, and none of us had been answerable!' "'We must ride after.' said Gabriel decisively. "'I'll be responsible to Miss Everdeen for what we do. Yes, we'll follow.' "'Faith, I don't see how,' said Coggan. "'All our horses are too heavy for that trick except little Poppet. And what's she between two of us? If we only had that pair over the hedge we might do something.' "'Which pair?' "'Mr. Boldwood's, Tidy and Mall.' "'Then wait here till I come hither again,' said Gabriel. He ran down the hill towards Farmer Boldwood's. "'Farmer Boldwood's not at home,' said Mary Ann. "'All the better,' said Coggan. "'I know what he's gone for.' Less than five minutes brought up Oak again, running at the same pace with two halters dangling from his hand. "'Where did you find him?' said Coggan, turning round and leaping upon the hedge without waiting for an answer. "'Under the eaves. I knew where they were kept.' said Gabriel, following him. "'Coggan, can you ride barebacked? There's no time to look for saddles.' "'Like a hero,' said Jan. "'Mary Ann, you go to bed,' shouted Gabriel to her from the top of the hedge. Springing down into Boldwood's pastures, each pocketed his halter to hide it from the horses, who, seeing the men empty-handed, docilely allowed themselves to be seized by the mane, when the holsters were dexterously slipped on. Having neither bit nor bridle, Oak and Coggan extemporized the former by passing the rope in each case through the animal's mouth and looping it on the other side. Oak vaulted astride, and Coggan clambered up by aid of the bank, when they ascended to the gate and galloped off in the direction taken by Bathsheba's horse and the robber, whose vehicle the horse had been harnessed to was a matter of some uncertainty. Weatherbury Bottom was reached in three or four minutes. They scanned the shady green patch by the roadside. 
The gypsies were gone. The villains, said Gabriel. Which way have they gone, I wonder? Straight on, as sure as God made little apples, said Jan. Very well. We are better mounted. We must overtake them, said Oak. Now, on at full speed. No sound of the rider in their van could now be discovered. The road-metal grew softer and more clayed as Weatherbury was left behind, and the late rain had wetted its surface to a somewhat plastic but not muddy state. They came to crossroads. Coggan suddenly pulled up Moll and slipped off. "'What's the matter?' said Gabriel. "'We must try and track him, since we can't hear him,' said Jan, fumbling in his pockets. He struck a light and held the match to the ground. The rain had been heavier here, and all foot and horse-tracks made previous to the storm had been abraded and blurred by the drops, and there were now so many little scoops of water which reflected the flame of the match like eyes. One set of tracks was fresh and had no water in them. One pair of ruts was also empty, and not small canals like the others. The footprints forming this recent impression were full of information as to pace. They were in equidistant pairs, three or four feet apart, the right and left foot of each pair being exactly opposite one another. "'Straight on!' exclaimed Jan. "'Tracks like that mean a stiff gallop. No wonder we don't hear them. And the horse is harnessed. Look at the ruts. Aye, that's our mare, sure enough.' "'How do you know?' "'Old Jimmy Harris only shooed her last week, and I'd swear to his make among ten thousand. "'The rest of the gypsies must have gone on earlier or some other way,' said Oak. "'You saw there were no other tracks.' "'True.' They rode along silently for a long weary time. Coggan carried an old pinchbeck repeater, which he had inherited from some genius in his family, and it now struck one. He lighted another match and examined the ground again. "'Tis a canter now,' he said, throwing away the light. "'A twisty, rickety pace for a gig.' The fact is, they overdrove her at starting. We shall catch him yet. Again they hastened on, and entered Blackmore Vale. Coggan's watch struck one. When they looked again, the hoof-marks were so spaced as to form a sort of zigzag if united, like the lamps along a street. "'That's a trot, I know,' said Gabriel. "'Only a trot now,' said Coggan, cheerfully. "'We shall overtake him in time.' They pushed rapidly on for yet two or three miles. "'Ah, a moment,' said Jan. "'Let's see how she was driven up this hill. "'Twill help us.' A light was promptly struck upon his gaiters as before, and the examination made. "'Hurrah!' said Coggan. "'She's walked up here, and well she might. "'We shall get him in two miles for a crown.' They rode three and listened. No sound was to be heard save a mill-pond trickling hoarsely through a hatch, and suggesting gloomy possibilities of drowning by jumping in. Gabriel dismounted when they came to a turning. The tracks were absolutely the only guide as to the direction that they now had, and great caution was necessary to avoid confusing them with some others which had made their appearance lately. "'What does this mean, though I guess?' said Gabriel, looking up at Coggan as he moved the match over the ground about the turning. Coggan, who no less than the panting horse had latterly shown signs of weariness, again scrutinised the mystic characters. This time only three were of the regular horseshoe shape. Every fourth was a dot. He screwed up his face and emitted a long, Phew! 
"'Lame,' said Oak. "'Yes, dainty is lamed, the near foot afore,' said Coggan, slowly, staring still at the footprints. "'We push on,' said Gabriel, remounting his humid steed. Although the road along its greater part had been as good as any turnpike road in the country, it was nominally only a byway. The last turning had brought them to the high road leading to Bath. Coggan recollected himself. "'We shall have him now,' he exclaimed. "'Where?' "'Sherton Turnpike. The keeper of that gate is the sleepiest man between here and London. Dan Randall, that's his name, knowed him for years, when he was at Casterbridge Gate. Between the lameness and the gate tis a done job.' They now advanced with extreme caution. Nothing was said until, against the shady background of foliage, five white bars were visible, crossing their route a little way ahead. "'Hush! We are almost close,' said Gabriel. "'Amble upon the grass,' said Coggan. The white bars were blotted out in the midst by a dark shape in front of them. The silence of this lonely time was pierced by an exclamation from that quarter. "'Hoy! Ahoy! Gate!' It appeared there had been a previous call which they had not noticed, for on their close approach the door of the turnpike house opened, and the keeper came out half-dressed with a candle in his hand. The rays illuminated the whole group. "'Keep the gate closed!' shouted Gabriel. "'He has stolen the horse!' "'Who?' said the turnpike man. Gabriel looked at the driver of the gig, and saw a woman. Bathsheba, his mistress. On hearing his voice she had turned her face away from the light. Coggan had, however, caught sight of her in the meanwhile. "'Why, tis mistress, I'll take my oath,' he said, amazed. Bathsheba it certainly was, and she had by this time done the trick she could do so well in crises not of love, namely mask a surprise by coolness of manner. "'Well, Gabriel?' she inquired quietly. "'Where are you going?' "'We thought,' began Gabriel. "'I am driving to Bath,' she said, taking for her own use the assurance that Gabriel lacked. An important matter made it necessary for me to give up my visit to Liddy, and go off at once. What, then, were you following me?' "'We thought the horse was stole.' "'Well, what a thing! How very foolish of you not to know that I had taken the trap and horse! I could neither wake Mary Ann nor get into the house, though I hammered for ten minutes against her window-sill. Fortunately I could get the key of the coach-house, so it troubled no one further. Didn't you think it might be me?' "'Why should we, miss?' "'Perhaps not. Why, those are never Farmer Boldwood's horses. Goodness mercy! What have you been doing, bringing trouble upon me in this way?' "'What, mustn't the lady move an inch from her door without being dogged like a thief?' "'But how was we to know, if you left no account of your doings?' expostulated Coggan. "'And ladies don't drive at these hours, miss, as a general rule of society.' "'I did leave an account, and you would have seen it in the morning. I, I wrote in chalk on the chalk-house doors that I had come back for the horse and gig and driven off, that I could arouse nobody and should return soon.' "'But you'll consider, ma'am, uh, that we couldn't see that till it got daylight.' "'True,' she said and though vexed at first she had too much sense to blame them long or seriously for a devotion to her that was as valuable as it was rare she added with a very pretty grace well 
I really thank you heartily for taking all this trouble, but I wish you had borrowed anybody's horses but Mr. Boldwood's. "'Dainty is lame, miss,' said Coggan. "'Can ye go on?' "'It was only stone in her shoe, and I got down and pulled it out a hundred yards back. I can manage very well, thank you. I shall be in Bath by daylight. Will you now return, please?' She turned her head. The gateman's candle, shimmering upon her quick, clear eyes as she did so, passed through the gate, and was soon wrapped in the embowering shades of mysterious summer boughs. Coggan and Gabriel put about their horses, and, fanned by the velvety air of this July night, retraced the road by which they had come. "'A strange vagary, this of hers, isn't it, Oak?' said Coggan, curiously. "'Yes,' said Gabriel, shortly. She won't be in Bath by no daylight. Coggan, suppose we keep this night's work as quiet as we can. I'm of one and the same mind. Very well. We should be home by three o'clock or so, and can creep into the parish like lambs. Bathsheba's perturbed meditations by the roadside had ultimately evolved a conclusion that there were only two remedies for the present desperate state of affairs. The first was merely to keep Troy away from Weatherbury till Boldwood's indignation had cooled. The second to listen to Oak's entreaties, and Boldwood's denunciations, and give up Troy altogether. Alas! Could she give up this new love, induce him to renounce her by saying she did not like him, could no more speak to him and beg him for her good to end his furlough in Bath and see her and Weatherbury no more? This was a picture full of misery, but for a while she contemplated it firmly, allowing herself nevertheless, as girls will, to dwell upon the happy life she would have enjoyed had Troy been Boldwood, and the path of love the path of duty, inflicting upon herself gratuitous tortures by imagining him the lover of another woman after forgetting her, for she had penetrated Troy's nature so far as to estimate his tendencies pretty accurately but unfortunately loved him no less in thinking that he might soon cease to love her indeed considerably more she jumped to her feet she would see him at once yes she would implore him by word of mouth to assist her in this dilemma a letter to keep him away could not reach him in time even if he should be disposed to listen to it was Bathsheba altogether blind to the obvious fact that the support of a lover's arms is not of a kind best calculated to assist the resolve to renounce him? Or was she sophistically sensible, with a thrill of pleasure, that by adopting this course of getting rid of him she was ensuring a meeting with him, at any rate once more? It was now dark, and the hour must have been nearly ten. The only way to accomplish her purpose was to give up her idea of visiting Liddy at Yalbury, return to Weatherbury Farm, put the horse into the gig, and drive at once to Bath. The scheme seemed at first impossible. The journey was a fearfully heavy one, even for a strong horse, at her own estimate, and she much underrated the distance. It was most venturesome for a woman, at night and alone. But could she go on to Liddy's and leave things to take their course? No. No, anything but that. Bathsheba was full of a stimulating turbulence, besides which caution vainly prayed for a hearing. She turned back towards the village. Her walk was slow, for she wished not to enter Weatherbury till the cottages were in bed, and particularly till Boldwood was secure. Her plan was now to drive to Bath during the night. 
see Sergeant Troy in the morning before he set out to come to her, bid him farewell, and dismiss him. Then, to rest the horse thoroughly, herself to weep the while, she thought, starting early the next morning on her return journey. By this arrangement she could trot dainty, gently all the day, reach Liddy at Yalbury in the evening, and come home to Weatherbury with her whenever they chose, so nobody would know she had been to Bath at all. Such was Bathsheba's scheme, but in her topographical ignorance as a latecomer to the place, she misreckoned the distance of her journey as not much more than half what it really was. This idea she proceeded to carry out, with what initial success we have already seen. End of chapter 32Chapter thirty three of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter thirty three. In the Sun, a Harbinger. A week passed, and there were no tidings of Bathsheba, nor was there any explanation of her Gilpin's rig. Then a note came from Mary Anne stating that the business which had called her mistress to Bath still detained her there, but that she hoped to return in the course of another week. Another week passed. The oat-harvest began, and all the men were afield under a monochromatic glamour sky, amid the trembling air and short shadows of noon. Indoors nothing was to be heard save the droning of blue-bottle flies. Out of doors the whetting of scythes and the hiss of tressy oat-ears rubbing together as their perpendicular stalks of amber-yellow fell heavily to each swathe. Every drop of moisture not in the men's bottles and flagons in the form of cider was raining as perspiration from their foreheads and cheeks. Drought was everywhere else. They were about to withdraw for a while into the charitable shade of a tree in the fence, when Coggan saw a figure in a blue coat and brass buttons running to them across the field. "'I wonder who that is,' he said. "'I hope nothing is wrong about mistress,' said Mary Ann, who, with some other women, was tying the bundles. Oats always been sheafed on this farm. "'But an unlucky token came to me indoors this morning.' I went to unlock the door and dropped the key, and it fell upon the stone floor and broke into two pieces. Breaking a key is a dreadful bodement. I wish Mrs. was home. "'Tis came ball,' said Gabriel, pausing from whetting his repuck. Oak was not bound by his agreement to assist in the cornfield, but the harvest month is an anxious time for a farmer, and the corn was Bathsheba's, so he lent a hand. "'He's dressed up in his best clothes.' said Matthew Moon. He'd been away from home for a few days since he's had that felon upon his finger, for he said, since I can't work I'll have a holiday. A good time for one, a excellent time, said Joseph Poorgrass, straightening his back, for he, like some of the others, had a way of resting a while from his labour on such hot days, for reasons preternaturally small, of which Cain Ball's advent on a weekday in his Sunday clothes was one of the first magnitude. "'Twas a bad leg allowed me to read the Pilgrim's Progress, and Mark Clark learnt all fours in a whitlow. "'Aye, and my father put his arm out of joint to have time to go to courtin', said Jan Coggan, in an eclipsing tone, wiping his face with his shirt-sleeve and thrusting back his hat upon the nape of his neck. 
By this time Caney was nearing the group of harvesters, and was perceived to be carrying a large slice of bread and ham in one hand, from which he took mouthfuls as he ran, the other being wrapped in a bandage. When he came close his mouth assumed the bell shape, and he began to cough violently. "'Now, Caney,' said Gabriel sternly, "'how many more times must I tell you to keep from running so fast when you be eating? You'll choke yourself some day. That's what you'll do, Cain Ball.' <coughs> replied Cain. A crumb of my victuals went the wrong way. <coughs> That's what it is, Mr. Oak. And I've been visiting to Bath because I had a felon on my thumb. Yes, and I've seen... <coughs> Directly Cain mentioned Bath, they all threw down their hooks and forks and drew around him. Unfortunately, the erratic crumb did not improve his narrative powers, and a supplementary hindrance was that of a sneeze, jerking from his pocket his rather large watch, which dangled in front of the young man, pendulum-wise. "'Yes,' he continued, directing his thoughts to Bath and letting his eyes follow, "'I've seen the world at last, <coughs> and I've seen our missus.' <coughs> "'Bother the boy,' said Gabriel. "'Something is always going the wrong way down your throat.' so that you can't tell what's necessary to be told. <laughs> there, please, Mr. Oak, and that have just slid into my stomach and brought the cough on again. Yes, that's just it. Your mouth is always open, you young rascal. Tis terrible bad to have a gnat fly down your throat, poor boy, said Matthew Moon. Well, that bath you saw, prompted Gabriel. I saw her mistress, continued the junior shepherd, and a soldier walking along. And by me by they got closer and closer, and then they went arm and crook, like court and complete <coughs> like court and complete <coughs> court and complete Losing the thread of his narrative at this point simultaneously with his loss of breath, their informant looked up and down the field, apparently for some clue to it. Well, I see our missus at a soldier <coughs> "'Damn the boy,' said Gabriel. "'Tis only me manner, Mr. Oak, if you'll excuse it,' said Cain Ball, looking reproachfully at Oak, with eyes drenched in their own dew. "'Here's some cider for him. That'll cure his throat,' said Jan Coggan, lifting a flagon of cider, and pulling out the cork and applying the whole to Caney's mouth. Joseph Poorgrass, in the meantime, beginning to think apprehensively of the serious consequences that would follow Caney Ball's strangulation in his cough, and the history of his bath adventures dying with him. "'For my poor self, I always say, please God, afore I do anything,' said Joseph, in an unboastful voice. "'And so should you, Cain Ball. Tis a great safeguard, and might perhaps save you from being choked to death some day.' Mr. Coggan poured the liquor with unstinted liberality at the suffering Cain's circular mouth, half of it running down the side of the flagon, and half of what reached his mouth running down the outside of his throat, and half of what ran in going the wrong way, and being coughed and sneezed around the persons of the gathered reapers in the form of a cider-fog, which for a moment hung in the sunny air like a small exhalation. "'There's a great clumsy sneeze. Why can't you have better manners, you young dog?' said Coggan, withdrawing the flagon. "'Cider went up my nose!' cried Caney, as soon as he could speak. "'And now tis gone down my neck, and into my poor dumb felon, and over my shiny buttons and all my best clothes.' "'The poor lad's cough is terrible unfortunate,' said Matthew Moon. 
and a great history on hand, too. Bump us back, Shepherd. "'Tis my nature, mourned Cain. "'Mother says I always was so excitable when my feelings were worked up to a point.' "'True, true,' said Joseph Poorgrass. "'The Balls always were a very excitable family. "'I know the boy's grandfather, a truly nervous and modest man, even to genteel refinery. "'Twas blush, blush with him, almost as much as it is with me. "'Not but that it's a fault in me.' "'Not at all, Master Poorgrass,' said Coggan. "'Tis a very noble quality in ye.' <laughs> "'Well, I wish to know nothing abroad, nothing at all,' murmured Poorgrass diffidently. "'But we be born to things, that's true. Yet yeah, I would rather my trifle were hid, though perhaps a high nature is a little high, and at my birth all things were possible to my Maker, and he may have begrudged no gifts. But under your bushel, Joseph, under your bushel with ye.' a strange desire neighbours this desire to hide and no praise due yet there is a sermon on the mount with a calendar of the blessed at the head and certain meek men may be named therein caney's grandfather was a very clever man said matthew moon invented a apple tree out of his own head which is called by his name to-day the early ball you know him jan a quarrenden grafted from a tom putt and a rather ripe upon top of that again "'Tis true, I used to bide about in a public-house with a woman in a way he had no business to buy rights, but there, I were a clever man in the sense of the term." "'Now then,' said Gabriel impatiently, "'what did you see, Cain?" "'I seed our missus go into a sort of park-place, where there's seats and shrubs and flowers, arm and crook with a soldier,' continued Cain firmly, and with a dim sense that his words were very effective as regarded Gabriel's emotions. And I think the soldier was Sergeant Troy, and they sat together for more than half an hour, talking moving things, and she once was crying almost to death, and when they came out her eyes were shining, and she was as white as a lily, and they looked into one another's faces, as far gone friendly as a man and woman can be. Gabriel's features seemed to get thinner. Well, what did you see besides? Oh, all sorts. White as a lily. You are sure to she? Oh, yes. Well, what besides? Great glass windows to the shops, and great clouds in the sky, full of rain, and old wooden trees in the country round. You stump, Paul, what'll you say next? said Coggan. Letting alone, interposed Joseph Poorgrass, the boy's meaning is that the sky and earth in the kingdom of Bath is not altogether different from ours here. It is for our good to gain knowledge of strange cities, and as such the boy's words should be suffered, so to speak it. "'And the people of Bath,' continued Cain, "'never need to light their fires except as a luxury, for the water springs up out of the earth ready boiled for use.' "'Tis true as the light,' testified Matthew Moon. "'I've heard other navigators say the same thing.' "'They drink nothing else there,' said Cain, "'and seem to enjoy it, to see how they swallow it down.' "'Well, it seems a barbarian practice enough to us, but I dare say the natives think nothing of it,' said Matthew. "'And don't victual spring up as well as drink?' asked Coggan, twirling his eye. "'No, I own to a blot there in Bath, a true blot. God didn't provide him with victuals as well as drink, and t'was a drawback I couldn't get over at all.' "'Well, tis a curious place, to say the least,' observed Moon. 
and it must be a curious people that live therein. "'It's Everdeen and the soldier were walking about together, you say?' said Gabriel, returning to the group. "'Aye, and she wore a beautiful gold-coloured silk gown, trimmed with black lace, that would have stood alone without legs inside if required. "'Twas a very winsome sight, and her hair was brushed splendid, and when the sun shone upon the bright gown and his red coat, my, how handsome they looked! You could see them all the length of the street.' "'And what then?' murmured Gabriel. "'And then I went to Griffin's to have me boots hobbed, and then I went to Riggs's batty-cake shop, and asked them for a penneth of the cheapest and nicest stales, that were all but blue mouldy, and but not quite. And whilst I was charring them down, I walked on, and see that clock with a face as big as a bacon-trendle. "'But that's nothing to do with mistress.' "'I'm coming to that if you leave me alone, Mr. Oak,' remonstrated Caney. "'If you excites me, perhaps you'll bring on my cough, and then I shan't be able to tell you nothing.' "'Yes, let him tell it his own way,' said Coggan. Gabriel settled into a despairing attitude of patience, and Caney went on. "'And there were great large houses, and more people all the week long than at Weathery Walking Club on White Tuesdays. And I went to grand churches and chapels, and how the parson would pray. Yes, he would kneel down and put up his hands together, and make the holy gold rings on his fingers gleam and twinkle in your eyes.' that he'd earned by praying so excellent well. Ah, yes, I wish I lived there. Our poor parson thirdly can't get no money to buy such rings, said Matthew Moon thoughtfully, and as good a man as ever walked. I don't believe poor thirdly have a single one, even of the humblest tin or copper. Such a great ornament as they be to him on a dull afternoon, when he's up in the pulpit lighted by the wax candles. But tis impossible, poor man. Ah, to think how unequal things be. "'Perhaps he's made of different stuff than to wear em, said Gabriel grimly. "'Well, that's enough of this. Go on, Caney, quick.' "'Oh, and the new style of parsons wear moustaches and long beards,' continued the illustrious traveller, "'and look like Moses and Aaron complete, and make we folks in the congregation feel all over like the children of Israel.' "'A very right feeling, very,' said Joseph Poorgrass. "'And there's two religions going on in the nation now?' High Church and High Chapel, and, thinks I, I'll play fair. So I went to High Church in the morning, and High Chapel in the afternoon. A right and proper boy, said Joseph Poorgrass. Well, at High Church they pray singing, and worship all the colours of the rainbow, and at High Chapel they pray preaching, and worship drab and whitewash only, and then I didn't see no more of Miss Everdeen at all. Oh, why didn't you say so afore, then? exclaimed Oak, with much disappointment. "'Ah,' said Matthew Moon, "'she'll wish her cake dough if so be she's over-intimate with that man.' "'She's not over-intimate with him,' said Gabriel indignantly. "'She should know better,' said Coggan. "'Our missus has too much sense under they knots of black hair to do such a mad thing. "'You see, he's not a coarse, ignorant man, for he was well brought up,' said Matthew dubiously. "'Twas only wildness that made him a soldier, and made rather like your man a sin.' "'Now came Ball,' said Gabriel restlessly. "'Can you swear in the most awful form that the woman you saw was Miss Everdeen?' "'Came Ball, you no longer be a babe in suckling,' said Joseph, in the sepulchral tone the circumstances demanded. 
and you know what taking an oath is. "'Tis a horrible testament, mind ye, which you should say and seal with your bloodstone, "'and the prophet Matthew tells us that on whomsoever it shall fall it will grind them to powder. "'Now, before all the work-folk here assembled, can you swear to your words, as the shepherd asks ye?' "'Please no, Mr. Oak,' said Caney, looking from one to the other with great uneasiness "'at the spiritual magnitude of the physician. "'I don't mind saying tis true, but I don't like to say tis damn true, if that's what you mean.' "'Cain, Cain, how can you?' asked Joseph sternly. "'You be asked to swear in a holy manner, and you swear like wicked Shimei, the son of Gera, who cursed as he came. Young man, fie!' "'No, I don't. Tis you want to squander a poor boy's soul, Joseph Poorgrass, that's what tis.' said Cain, beginning to cry. All I mean is that in common truth twas Miss Everdeen and Sergeant Troy, but in the horrible so healthy truth that you want to make of it, perhaps twas somebody else. "'There's no getting to the rights of it,' said Gabriel, turning to his work. "'Cain Ball, you'll come to a bit of bread,' groaned Joseph Poorgrass. Then the reaper's hooks were flourished again, and the old sounds went on. Gabriel, without making any pretence of being lively, did nothing to show that he was particularly dull. However, Coggan knew pretty nearly how the land lay, and when they were in a nook together he said, "'Don't take on about her, Gabriel. What difference does it make whose sweetheart she is, since she can't be yours?' "'That's the very thing I say to myself,' said Gabriel. End of chapter 33「Chapter thirty four of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter thirty four. Home again, a trickster. That same evening at dusk, Gabriel was leaning over Coggan's garden gate, taking an up and down survey before retiring to rest. A vehicle of some kind was softly creeping along the grassy margin of the lane. From it spread the tones of two women talking. The tones were natural and not at all suppressed. Oak instantly knew the voices to be those of Bathsheba and Liddy. The carriage came opposite and passed by. It was Miss Everdeen's gig, and Liddy and her mistress were the only occupants of the seat. Liddy was asking questions about the city of Bath and her companion was answering them listlessly and unconcernedly. Both Bathsheba and the horse seemed weary. The exquisite relief of finding that she was here again, safe and sound, overpowered all reflection, and Oak could only luxuriate in the sense of it. All grave reports were forgotten. He lingered and lingered on, till there was no difference between the eastern and western expanses of sky and the timid hares began to limp courageously round the dim hillocks. Gabriel might have been there an additional half-hour, when a dark form walked slowly by. "'Good-night, Gabriel,' the passer said. It was Boldwood. "'Good-night, sir,' said Gabriel. Boldwood likewise vanished up the road, and Oak shortly afterwards turned indoors to bed. Farmer Boldwood went on to Miss Everdeen's house. He reached the front, and approaching the entrance saw a light in the parlour. The blind was not drawn down, and inside the room was Bathsheba, looking over some papers or letters. Her back was towards Boldwood. 
He went to the door, knocked and waited with tense muscles and an aching brow. Boldwood had not been outside his garden since his meeting with Bathsheba in the road to Yalbury. Silent and alone he had remained in moody meditation on woman's ways, deeming as essentials of the whole sex the accidents of the single one of the number he had ever closely beheld. By degrees a more charitable temper had pervaded him, and this was the reason of his sally to-night. He had come to apologise and beg forgiveness of Bathsheba, with something like a sense of shame at his violence, having but just now learnt that she had returned, only from a visit to Liddy, as he supposed, the bath escapade being quite unknown to him. He inquired for Miss Everdeen. Liddy's manner was odd, but he did not notice it. She went in, leaving him standing there, and in her absence the blind of the room containing Bathsheba was pulled down. Boldwood augured ill from that sign. Liddy came out. "'My mistress says she can't see you, sir,' she said. The farmer instantly went out by the gate. He was unforgiven, that was the issue of it all. He had seen her, who was to him simultaneously a delight and a torture, sitting in the room he had shared with her, as a peculiarly privileged guest only a little earlier in the summer, and she had denied him an entrance there now. Boldwood did not hurry homeward. It was ten o'clock, at least, when, walking deliberately through the lower part of Weatherbury, he heard the carrier's spring-van entering the village. The van ran to and from the town in a northern direction, and it was owned and driven by a Weatherbury man, at the door of whose house it now pulled up. The lamp fixed to the head of the hood illuminated a scarlet and gilded form, who was the first to alight. "'Ah!' said Boulder to himself. "'Come to see her again.' Troy entered the carrier's house, which had been the place of his lodging on his last visit to his native place. Boldwood was moved by a sudden determination. He hastened home. In ten minutes he was back again, and made as if he were going to call upon Troy at the carrier's. But as he approached, someone opened the door and came out. He heard this person say, "'Good-night,' to the inmates, and the voice was Troy's. This was strange, coming so immediately after his arrival. Boldwood, however, hastened up to him. Troy had what appeared to be a carpet-bag in his hand, the same that he had brought with him. It seemed as if he were going to leave again this very night. Troy turned up the hill and quickened his pace. Boldwood stepped forward. "'Sergeant Troy?' "'Yes, I am Sergeant Troy.' "'Just arrived from up the country, I think.' "'Just arrived from Bath.' "'I am William Boldwood.' Indeed. The tone in which this word was uttered was all that had been wanted to bring Boldwood to the point. "'I wish to speak a word with you,' he said. "'What about?' "'About her who lives just ahead there, and about the woman you have wronged.' "'I wonder at your impertinence,' said Troy, moving on. "'Now look here,' said Boldwood, standing in front of him. "'Wonder or not, you are going to hold a conversation with me.' Troy heard the dull determination in Boldwood's voice, looked at his stalwart frame, then at the thick cudgel he carried in his hand. He remembered it was past ten o'clock. It seemed worth while to be civil to Boldwood. "'Very well. I'll listen with pleasure,' said Troy, placing his bag on the ground. "'Only speak low, for somebody or other may overhear us in the farmhouse there.' "'Well, then, I know a good deal concerning your Fanny Robin's attachment to you.' I may say, too, that I believe I am the only person in the village, excepting Gabriel Oak, 
who does know it. You ought to marry her. I suppose I ought. Indeed, I wish to, but I cannot. Why? Troy was about to utter something hastily. He then checked himself and said, I am too poor. His voice was changed. Previously it had had a devil-may-care tone. It was the voice of a trickster now. Boldwood's present mood was not critical enough to notice tones. He continued, I may as well speak plainly, and understand, I don't wish to enter into the questions of right or wrong, woman's honour and shame, or to express any opinion on your conduct. I intend a business transaction with you. I see, said Troy. Suppose we sit down here. An old tree-trunk lay under the hedge immediately opposite, and they sat down. "'I was engaged to be married to Miss Everdeen,' said Boldwood. "'But you came and—' "'Not engaged,' said Troy. "'As good as engaged?' "'If I had not turned up, she might have become engaged to you.' "'Hang might.' "'Would, then.' "'If you had not come, I should certainly—yes, certainly have been accepted by this time. "'If you had not seen her, you might have been married to Fanny. "'Well—' There's too much difference between Miss Everdeen's station and your own for this flirtation with her to ever benefit you by ending in marriage. So all I ask is, don't molest her any more. Marry Fanny. I'll make it worth your while. How will you? I'll pay you well now. I'll settle a sum of money upon her, and I'll see that you don't suffer from poverty in the future. I'll put it clearly. Bathsheba is only playing with you. You are too poor for her, as I said. So give up wasting your time about a great match you'll never make, for a moderate and rightful match you may make to-morrow. Take up your carpet-bag, turn about, leave Weatherbury now, this night, and you shall take fifty pounds with you. Fanny shall have fifty to enable her to prepare for the wedding, when you have told me where she is living, and she shall have five hundred paid down on her wedding-day. In making this statement, Boldwood's voice revealed only too clearly a consciousness of the weakness of his position, his aims, and his method. His manner had lapsed quite from that of the firm and dignified Boldwood of former times, and such a scheme as he had now engaged in he would have condemned as childishly imbecile only a few months ago. We discern a grand force in the lover which he lacks whilst a free man, but there is a breadth of vision in the free man which in the lover we vainly seek. Where there is much bias there must be some narrowness, and love, though added emotion, is subtracted capacity. Boldwood exemplified this to an abnormal degree. He knew nothing of Fanny Robin's circumstances or whereabouts. He knew nothing of Troy's possibilities. Yet that was what he said. "'I like Fanny best,' said Troy. "'And if, as you say, Miss Everdeen is out of my reach, why, I'll have all to gain by accepting your money and marrying Fan. But she's only a servant.' "'Never mind. Do you agree to my arrangement?' "'I do.' "'Ah!' said Boldwood, in a more elastic voice. "'Oh, Troy, if you like her best, then why did you step in here and injure my happiness?' "'I love Fanny best now,' said Troy. "'But Bath—Miss uh, Everdeen inflamed me, and displaced Fanny for a time. It is over now.' "'Why should it be over so soon? And why, then, did you come here again?' "'There are weighty reasons. Fifty pounds at once, you said.' "'I did,' said Boldwood. "'And here they are, fifty sovereigns.' He handed Troy a small packet. 
"'You have everything ready. It seems that you calculated on my accepting them,' said the sergeant, taking the packet. "'I thought you might accept them,' said Boldwood. "'You've only my word that the programme shall be adhered to, whilst I, at any rate, have fifty pounds.' "'I had thought of that, and I have considered that if I can't appeal to your honour, I can trust your—well, shrewdness, we'll call it not to lose five hundred pounds in prospect, and also make a bitter enemy of a man who is willing to be an extremely useful friend. "'Stop! Listen!' said Troy, in a whisper. A light pit-pat was audible upon the road just above them. "'By George, tis she,' he continued. "'I must go and meet her.' "'She? Who?' "'Bathsheba. Bathsheba, out alone at this time of night.' said Boldwood in amazement, and starting up. "'Why must you meet her?' "'She was expecting me to-night, and I must now speak to her, and wish her good-bye, according to your wish.' "'I don't see the necessity of speaking.' "'It can do no harm, and she'll be wandering about looking for me if I don't. You shall hear all I say to her. It will help in your love-making when I am gone.' "'Your tone is mocking.' Oh, no, and remember this, if she does not know what has become of me, she will think more about me than if I tell her flatly I have come to give her up. Will you confine your words to that one point? Shall I hear every word you say? Every word. Now sit there and hold my carpet-bag for me, and mark what you hear. The light footstep came closer, halting occasionally, as if the walker listened for a sound. Troy whistled a double note in a soft, fluty tone. "'Come to that, is it?' murmured Boldwood uneasily. "'You promised silence,' said Troy. "'I promise again.' Troy stepped forward. "'Frank, dearest, is that you?' The tones were Bathsheba's. "'Oh, God!' said Boldwood. "'Yes,' said Troy to her. "'How late you are,' she continued tenderly. "'Did you come by the carrier?' I listened and heard his wheels entering the village, but it was some time ago, and I had almost given up on you, Frank. I was sure to come, said Frank. You knew I should, did you not? Well, I thought you would, she said playfully. And Frank, it is so lucky. There is not a soul in my house but me to-night. I have packed them all off, so nobody on earth will know of your visit to your lady's bower. Liddy wanted to go to her grandfather's, to tell him about her holiday, and I said she might stay with him till to-morrow, when you'll be gone again. "'Capital,' said Troy. "'But, dear me, I had better go back for my bag, because my slippers and brush and comb are in it. You run home whilst I fetch it, and I'll promise to be in your parlour in ten minutes.' "'Yes.' She turned and tripped up the hill again. During the progress of this dialogue there was a nervous twitching of Boldwood's tightly closed lips, and his face became bathed in a clammy dew. He now started forwards towards Troy. Troy turned to him and took up the bag. "'Shall I tell her I have come to give her up, and cannot marry her?' said the soldier mockingly. "'No, no, wait a minute. I want to say more to you, more to you,' said Boldwood, in a hoarse whisper. "'Now!' said Troy. You see my dilemma? Perhaps I am a bad man, the victim of my impulses, led away to do what I ought to leave undone. I can't, however, marry them both. And I have two reasons for choosing Fanny. First, I like her best upon the whole, and second, you make it worth my while." At the same instant Boldwood sprang upon him, and held him by the neck. 
Troy felt Boldwood's grasp slowly tightening. The move was absolutely unexpected. "'A moment!' he gasped. "'You are injuring her you love.' "'Well, what do you mean?' said the farmer. "'Give me breath,' said Troy. Boldwood loosened his hand, saying, "'By heaven, I have a mind to kill you.' "'And ruin her?' "'Save her?' "'Oh, how can she be saved now, unless I marry her?' Boldwood groaned. He reluctantly released the soldier, and flung him back against the hedge. "'The devil! You torture me!' he said. Troy rebounded like a ball, and was about to make a dash at the farmer, but checked himself, saying lightly, "'It is not worth while to measure my strength with you. Indeed, it is a barbarous way of settling a quarrel. I shall shortly leave the army because of that same conviction. Now after that revelation of how the land lies with Bathsheba, "'Twould be a mistake to kill me, would it not?' "'Twould be a mistake to kill you,' repeated Boldwood mechanically with a bowed head. "'Better kill yourself. Far better. I'm glad you see it. "'Troy, make her your wife, and don't act upon what I arranged just now. "'The alternative is dreadful, but take Bathsheba. I give her up. "'She must love you indeed to sell soul and body to you so utterly as she has done.' "'Wretched woman, deluded woman, you are, Bathsheba.' "'But about Fanny?' "'Bathsheba is a woman well-to-do,' continued Boldwood, in nervous anxiety. "'And, Troy, she will make a good wife, and, indeed, she is worth your hastening on your marriage with her.' "'But she has a will, not to say a temper, and I shall be a mere slave to her. I could do anything with poor Fanny Robin.' "'Troy,' said Boldwood, imploringly, "'I'll do anything for you.' Only don't desert her. Pray, don't desert her, Troy. Which? Poor Fanny. No, Bathsheba Everdeen. Love her best. Love her tenderly. How shall I get you to see how advantageous it will be to you to secure her at once? I don't wish to secure her in any new way. Boldwood's arm moved spasmodically towards Troy's person again. He repressed the instinct, and his form drooped as with pain. Troy went on. "'I shall soon purchase my discharge, and then—' "'But I wish you to hasten on this marriage. It will be better for you both. You love each other, and you must let me help you to do it.' "'How?' "'Why, by settling the five hundred on Bathsheba, instead of Fanny, to enable you to marry at once. No, she wouldn't have it of me. I'll pay it down to you on the wedding day.' Troy paused in secret amazement at Boldwood's wild infatuation. He carelessly said, "'And am I to have anything now?' "'Yes, if you wish to. But I have not much additional money with me. I did not expect this. But all I have is yours.' Boldwood, more like a somnambulist than a wakeful man, pulled out the large canvas bag he carried by way of a purse and searched it. "'I have twenty-one pounds more with me,' he said. Two notes and a sovereign. But before I leave you, I must have a paper signed. Pay me the money, and we'll go straight to her parlour, and make any arrangement you please to secure my compliance with your wishes. But she must know nothing of this cash business. Nothing, nothing, said Boldwood hastily. Here is the sum, and if you'll come to my house, we'll write out the agreement for the remainder, and the terms also. First we'll call upon her. But why? Come with me to-night, and go with me to-morrow to the surrogates. 
But she must be consulted, at any rate informed. Very well. Go on. They went up the hill to Bathsheba's house. When they stood at the entrance, Troy said, Wait here a moment. Opening the door, he glided inside, leaving the door ajar. Boldwood waited. In two minutes a light appeared in the passage. Boldwood then saw that the chain had been fastened across the door. Troy appeared inside, carrying a bedroom candlestick. "'What? Did you think I should break in?' said Boldwood contemptuously. "'Oh, no, it is merely my humour to secure things. Will you read this a moment? I'll hold the light.' Troy handed a folded newspaper through the slit between door and doorpost, and put the candle close. "'That's the paragraph,' he said, placing his finger on a line. Boldwood looked and read. Marriages. On the seventeenth instant, at St. Ambrose's Church, Bath, by the Reverend G. Mincing, B.A. Francis Troy, only son of the late Edward Troy, Esquire, M.D., of Weatherbury, and sergeant with dragoon guards, to Bathsheba, only surviving daughter of the late Mr. John Everdeen, of Casterbridge. This may be called Fort, meeting feeble. Hey, Boldwood? said Troy. A low gurgle of derisive laughter followed the words. The paper fell from Boldwood's hands. Troy continued. Fifty pounds to marry Fanny. Good. Twenty-one pounds not to marry Fanny. But Bathsheba. Good. Finale. Already Bathsheba's husband. Now, Boldwood, yours is the ridiculous faith which always attends interference between a man and his wife. And another word. Bad as I am, I am not such a villain as to make the marriage or misery of any woman a matter of huckster and sale. Fanny has long ago left me. I don't know where she is. I have searched everywhere. Another word yet. You say you love Bathsheba. Yet, on the merest apparent evidence, you instantly believe in her dishonour. A fig for such love. Now that I have taught you a lesson, take your money back again. I will not. I will not, said Boldwood in a hiss. Anyhow, I won't have it, said Troy contemptuously. He wrapped the packet of gold in the notes, and threw the whole into the road. Boldwood shook his clenched fist at him. You juggler of Satan! You black hound! I'll punish you yet, mark me! I'll punish you yet! Another peal of laughter. Troy then closed the door and locked himself in. Throughout the whole of that night Boldwood's dark form might have been seen walking about the hills and downs of Weatherbury, like an unhappy shade in the mournful fields by Acheron. End of chapter 34「by Thomas Hardy. Chapter thirty five. At an upper window. It was very early the next morning, a time of sun and dew. The confused beginnings of many bird songs spread into the healthy air, and the wan blue of the heaven was here and there coated with thin webs of incorporeal cloud, which were of no effect in obscuring day. All the lights in the scene were yellow as to colour and all the shadows were attenuated as to form. The creeping plants about the old manor-house were bowed with rows of heavy water-drops, 
which had upon objects behind them the effect of minute lenses of high magnifying power. Just before the clock struck five, Gabriel Oak and Coggan passed the village cross, and went on together to the fields. They were yet barely in view of their mistress's house, when Oak fancied he saw the opening of a casement in one of the upper windows. The two men were at this moment partially screened by an elder-bush, now beginning to be enriched with black bunches of fruit, and they paused before emerging from its shade. A handsome man leaned idly from the lattice. He looked east and then west, in the manner of one who makes a first morning survey. The man was Sergeant Troy. His red jacket was loosely thrown on, but not buttoned, and he had altogether the relaxed bearing of a soldier taking his ease. Coggan spoke first, looking quietly at the window. "'She has married him,' he said. Gabriel had previously beheld the sight, and he now stood with his back turned, making no reply. "'I fancied we should know something to-day,' continued Coggan. "'I heard wheels pass my door just after dark. You were out somewhere.' He glanced round upon Gabriel. "'Good heavens above us, Oak! How white your face is!' You look like a corpse. Do I? said Oak with a faint smile. Lean on the gate, I'll wait a bit. All right, all right. They stood by the gate a while, Gabriel listlessly staring at the ground. His mind sped into the future, and saw there, enacted in years of leisure, the scenes of repentance that would ensue from this work of haste. That they were married he had instantly decided. Why had it been so mysteriously managed? It had become known that she had had a fearful journey to Bath, owing to her miscalculating the distance, that the horse had broken down, and that she had been more than two days getting there. It was not Bathsheba's way to do things furtively. With all her faults she was candour itself. Could she have been entrapped? The union was not only an unutterable grief to him, it amazed him notwithstanding that he had passed the preceding week in a suspicion that such might be the issue of Troy's meeting with her away from home. Her quiet return with Liddy had to some extent dispersed the dread, just as that imperceptible motion which appears like stillness is infinitely divided in its properties from stillness itself. So had his hope, undistinguishable from despair, differed from despair indeed. In a few minutes they moved on again towards the house. The sergeant still looked from the window. "'Morning, comrades!' he shouted in a cheery voice when they came up. Coggan replied to the greeting. "'Ain't you going to answer the man?' he then said to Gabriel. "'I'd say good morning. You needn't spend a halfpenny of meaning upon it, and yet keep the man civil.' Gabriel soon decided, too, that, since the deed was done, to put the best face upon the matter would be the greatest kindness to her he loved. "'Good morning, Sergeant Troy,' he returned in a ghastly voice. "'A rambling, gloomy house, this,' said Troy, smiling. "'Why, they may not be married,' suggested Coggan. "'Perhaps she's not there.' Gabriel shook his head. The soldier turned a little towards the east, and the sun kindled his scarlet coat to an orange glow. "'But tis a nice old house,' responded Gabriel. "'Yes, I suppose so. But I feel like a new wine in an old bottle here. 
My notion is that sash windows should be put throughout, and these old wainscoted walls brightened up a bit, or the oak cleared quite away, and the walls papered. It would be a pity, I think. Well, no. A philosopher once said in my hearing that the old builders, who worked when art was a living thing, had no respect for the work of builders who went before them, but pulled down and altered as they thought fit. And why shouldn't we? Creation and preservation don't go well together, says he, and a million of antiquarians can't invent a style. My mind exactly. I am for making this place more modern, that we may be cheerful whilst we can. The military man turned and surveyed the interior of the room, to assist his ideas of improvement in this direction. Gabriel and Coggan began to move on. "'Oh, Coggan,' said Troy, as if inspired by a recollection, "'do you know if insanity has ever appeared in Mr. Boldwood's family?' Jan reflected for a moment. "'I once heard that an uncle of his was queer in the head, but I don't know the right to it,' he said. "'It's of no importance,' said Troy lightly. "'Well, I shall be down in the fields with you some time this week, but I have a few matters to attend to first. So good day to you. We shall, of course, keep on just as friendly terms as usual. I am not a proud man. Nobody is ever able to say that of Sergeant Troy. However, what is must be, and here's half a crown to drink my health, men.' Troy threw the coin dexterously across the front plot and over the fence towards Gabriel, who shunned it in its fall, his face turning to an angry red. Coggan twirled his eye, edged forward, and caught the money on its ricochet upon the road. "'Very well. You keep it, Coggan,' said Gabriel with disdain, and almost fiercely. "'As for me, I'll do without gifts from him.' "'Don't show it too much,' said Coggan musingly. For if he's married to her, mark my words, he'll buy us this charge and be our master here. Therefore, it is well to say friend outwardly, though you say trouble house within. Well, perhaps it is best to be silent, but I can't go further than that. I can't flatter, and if my place here is only to be kept by smoothing him down, my place must be lost. A horseman, whom they had for some time seen in the distance, now appeared close behind them. "'There's Mr. Boldwood,' said Oak. "'I wonder what Troy meant by his question.' Coggan and Oak nodded respectfully to the farmer, just checked their paces to discover if they were wanted, and, finding they were not, stood back to let him pass on. The only signs of the terrible sorrow Boldwood had been combating through the night, and was combating now, were the want of colour in his well-defined face, the enlarged appearance of the veins in his forehead and temples, and the sharper lines about his mouth. The horse bore him away, and the very step of the animal seemed significant of dogged despair. Gabriel for a minute rose above his own grief in noticing Boldwood's. He saw the square figure sitting erect upon the horse, the head turned to neither side, the elbows steady by the hips, the brim of the hat level and undisturbed in its onward glide until the keen edges of Boldwood's shape sank by degrees over the hill. To one who knew the man and his story there was something more striking in his immobility than in a collapse. The clash of discord between mood and matter here was forced painfully home to the heart, and, as in laughter there are more dreadful phrases than in tears, so was there in the steadiness of this agonised man 
an expression deeper than a cry. End of chapter 35「Far from the Madding Crowd」by Thomas Hardy Chapter 36 Wealth in Jeopardy The Revel One night at the end of August, when Bathsheba's experiences as a married woman were still new, and when the weather was yet dry and sultry, a man stood motionless in the stockyard of Weatherbury Upper Farm, looking at the moon and sky. The night had a sinister aspect. A heated breeze from the south slowly fanned the summits of lofty objects, and in the sky dashes of buoyant cloud were sailing in a course at right angles to that of another stratum, neither of them in the direction of the breeze below. The moon, as seen through these films, had a lurid metallic look. The fields were sallow with the impure light, and all were tinged in monochrome, as if beheld through stained glass. The same evening the sheep had trailed homeward head to tail, the behaviour of the rooks had been confused, and the horses had moved with timidity and caution. Thunder was imminent, and, taking some secondary appearances into consideration, it was likely to be followed by one of the lengthened rains which marked the close of dry weather for the season. Before twelve hours had passed, a harvest atmosphere would be a bygone thing. Oak gazed with misgiving at eight naked and unprotected ricks, massive and heavy with the rich produce of one half of the farm for that year. He went on to the barn. This was the night which had been selected by Sergeant Troy, ruling now in the room of his wife, for giving the harvest supper and dance. As Oak approached the building the sound of violins and a tambourine, and the regular jigging of many feet, grew more distinct. He came close to the large doors, one of which stood slightly ajar, and looked in. The central space, together with the recess at one end, was emptied of all encumbrances, and this area, covering about two-thirds of the whole, was appropriated for the gathering, the remaining end, which was piled to the ceiling with oats, being screened off with sailcloth. Tufts and garlands of green foliage decorated the walls, beams, and extemporized chandeliers, and immediately opposite to Oak a rostrum had been erected, bearing a table and chairs. Here sat three fiddlers, and beside them stood a frantic man with his hair on end, perspiration streaming down his cheeks, and a tambourine quivering in his hand. The dance ended, and on the black oak floor in the midst a new row of couples formed for another. "'Now, ma'am, and no offence, I hope, I ask what dance you would like next,' said the first violin. "'Really, it makes no difference.' said the clear voice of Bathsheba, who stood at the inner end of the building, observing the scene from behind a table covered with cups and viands. Troy was lolling beside her. "'Then,' said the fiddler, "'I'll venture to name that the right and proper thing is the soldier's joy. There being a gallant soldier married into the farm, eh, my sonnies, and gentlemen all?' "'It shall be the soldier's joy!' exclaimed the chorus. "'Thanks for the compliment.' said the sergeant gaily, taking Bathsheba by the hand and leading her to the top of the dance. 
for though I have purchased my discharge from Her Most Gracious Majesty's Regiment of Cavalry, the Eleventh Dragoon Guards, to attend to the new duties awaiting me here, I shall continue a soldier in spirit and feeling as long as I live. So the dance began. As to the merits of the soldier's joy, there cannot be, and never were, two opinions. It has been observed in the musical circles of Weatherbury and its vicinity that this melody, at the end of three-quarters of an hour of thunderous footing, still possesses more stimulative properties for the heel and toe than the majority of other dances at their first opening. The soldier's joy has, too, an additional charm in being so admirably adapted to the tambourine aforesaid, no mean instrument in the hands of a performer who understands the proper convulsions, spasms, St. Vitus's dances and fearful frenzies necessary when exhibiting its tones in their highest perfection. The immortal tune ended, a fine D-D rolling forth from the bass viol, with the sonorousness of a cannonade, and Gabriel delayed his entry no longer. He avoided Bathsheba, and got as near as possible to the platform where Sergeant Troy was now seated, drinking brandy and water, though the others drank without exception cider and ale. Gabriel could not easily thrust himself within speaking distance of the sergeant, and he sent a message, asking him to come down for a moment. The sergeant said he could not attend. "'Will you tell him, then?' said Gabriel that he only stepped at her to say that a heavy rain is sure to fall soon, and that something shall be done to protect the ricks. "'Mr. Troy says it will not rain,' returned the messenger, "'and he cannot stop to talk to you about such fidgets.' In juxtaposition with Troy, Oak had a melancholy tendency to look like a candle beside gas, and ill at ease he went out again, thinking he would go home, for under the circumstances he had no heart for the scene in the barn. At the door he paused for a moment. Troy was speaking. "'Friends, it is not only the harvest home that we are celebrating to-night, but this is also a wedding feast. A short time ago I had the happiness to lead to the altar this lady, your mistress, and not until now have we been able to give any public flourish to the event in Weatherbury. That it might be thoroughly well done, and that every man may go happy to bed, I have ordered to be brought here some bottles of brandy and kettles of hot water. A treble strong goblet will be handed round to each guest." Bathsheba put her hand upon his arm, and with upturned pale face said imploringly, "'No, don't give it to them. Pray don't, Frank. It will only do them harm. They have had enough of everything.' True. "'We don't wish for no more, thank ye,' said one or two. "'Pooh!' said the sergeant contemptuously, and raised his voice as if lighted up by a new idea. "'Friends,' he said, "'we'll send the women-folk home. "'Tis time they were in bed. "'Then we cockbirds will have a jolly carouse to ourselves. "'If any of the men show a white feather, "'let them look elsewhere for a winter's work.' Bathsheba indignantly left the barn followed by all the women and children. The musicians, not looking upon themselves as company, slipped quietly away to their spring wagon, and put in the horse. Thus Troy and the men of the farm were left sole occupants of the place. Oak, not to appear unnecessarily disagreeable, stayed a little while, then he too arose and quietly took his departure, followed by a friendly oath from the sergeant for not staying to a second round of grog. 
Gabriel proceeded towards his home. In approaching the door, his toe kicked something which felt and sounded soft, leathery, and distended, like a boxing-glove. It was a large toad humbly travelling across the path. Oak took it up, thinking it might be better to kill the creature to save it from pain, but finding it uninjured he placed it again among the grass. He knew what this direct message from the Great Mother meant, and soon came another. When he struck a light indoors there appeared upon the table a thin glistening streak, as if a brush of varnish had been lightly dragged across it. Oak's eyes followed the serpentine sheen to the other side, where it led up to a huge brown garden slug, which had come indoors to-night for reasons of its own. It was nature's second way of hinting to him that he was to prepare for foul weather. Oak sat down meditating for nearly an hour. During this time two black spiders, of the kind common in thatched houses, promenaded the ceiling, ultimately dropping to the floor. This reminded him that if there was one class of manifestation on this matter that he thoroughly understood, it was the instincts of sheep. He left the room, ran across two or three fields towards the flock, got upon a hedge, and looked over among them. They were crowded close together on the other side, around some furze bushes, and the first peculiarity observable was that, on the sudden appearance of Oak's head over the fence, they did not stir or run away. They had now a terror of something greater than their terror of man. But this was not the most noteworthy feature. They were all grouped in such a way that their tails, without a single exception, were towards that half of the horizon from which the storm threatened. There was an inner circle, closely huddled, and outside these they radiated wider apart, the pattern formed by the flock as a whole not being unlike a van-dyked lace collar to which the clump of furze-bushes stood in the position of a wearer's neck. This was enough to re-establish him in his original opinion. He knew now that he was right, and that Troy was wrong. Every voice in nature was unanimous in bespeaking change. But two distinct translations attached to these dumb expressions. Apparently there was to be a thunderstorm, and afterwards a cold, continuous rain. The creeping things seemed to know all about the later rain, but little of the interpolated thunderstorm, whilst the sheep knew all about the thunderstorm and nothing of the later rain. This complication of weathers being uncommon was all the more to be feared. Oak returned to the stackyard. All was silent there, and the conical tips of the ricks jutted darkly into the sky. There were five wheat ricks in this yard, and three stacks of barley. The wheat, when threshed, would average about thirty quarters to each stack, the barley at least forty. Their value to Bathsheba, and indeed to anybody, Oak mentally estimated by the following simple calculation. Five multiplied by thirty equals one hundred and fifty quarters equals five hundred pounds. Three multiplied by forty equals one hundred and twenty quarters equals two hundred and fifty pounds. Total seven hundred and fifty pounds. Seven hundred and fifty pounds in the divinest form that money can wear, that of necessary food for man and beast. Should the risk be run of deteriorating this bulk of corn to less than half its value, because of the instability of a woman? Never, if I can prevent it, said Gabriel. Such was the argument that Oak set outwardly before him 
But man, even to himself, is a palimpsest, having an ostensible writing, and another beneath the lines. It is possible that there was this golden legend under the utilitarian one. I will help to my last effort the woman I have loved so dearly. He went back to the barn to endeavour to obtain assistance for covering the ricks that very night. All was silent within, and he would have passed on in the belief that the party had broken up, had not a dim light, yellow as saffron by contrast with the greenish whiteness outside, streamed through a knot-hole in the folding doors. Gabriel looked in. An unusual picture met his eye. The candles suspended among the evergreens had burnt down to their sockets, and in some cases the leaves tied about them were scorched. Many of the lights had quite gone out. Others smoked and stank, grease dropping from them upon the floor. Here, under the table, and leaning against forms and chairs in every conceivable attitude, except the perpendicular, were the wretched persons of all the workfolk, the hair of their heads at such low levels being suggestive of mops and brooms. In the midst of these shone red and distinct the figure of Sergeant Troy, leaning back in a chair. Coggan was on his back, with his mouth open, buzzing forth snores, as were several others. The united breathings of the horizontal assemblage forming a subdued roar, like London from a distance. Joseph Poorgrass was curled round in the fashion of a hedgehog, apparently in attempts to present the least possible portion of a surface to the air and behind him was dimly visible an unimportant remnant of William Smallbury. The glasses and cups still stood upon the table, a water-jug being overturned, from which a small rill, after tracing its course with marvellous precision down the centre of the long table, fell into the neck of the unconscious Mark Clark, in a steady, monotonous drip, like the dripping of a stalactite in a cave. Gabriel glanced hopelessly at the group, which, with one or two exceptions, composed all the able-bodied men upon the farm. He saw at once that if the ricks were to be saved that night, or even the next morning, he must save them with his own hands. A faint ting-ting resounded from under Coggan's waistcoat. It was Coggan's watch striking the hour of two. Oak went to the recumbent form of Matthew Moon, who usually undertook the rough thatching of the homestead, and shook him. The shaking was without effect. Gabriel shouted in his ear, "'Where's your thatching-beetle and rick-sticks and spars?' "'Under the staddles,' said Moon, mechanically, with the unconscious promptness of a medium. Gabriel let go his head. It dropped upon the floor like a bowl, and then he went to Susan Tall's husband. "'Where's the key of the granary?' No answer. The question was repeated, with the same result. To be shouted to at night was evidently less of a novelty to Susan Tall's husband than to Matthew Moon. Oak flung down Tall's head to the corner again, and turned away. To be just, the men were not greatly to blame for this painful and demoralizing termination to the evening's entertainment. Sergeant Troy had so strenuously insisted, glass in hand, that drinking should be the bond of their union that those who wished to refuse hardly liked to be so unmannerly under the circumstances. Having from their youth up been entirely unaccustomed to any liquor stronger than cider or mild ale, it was no wonder that they had succumbed, one and all, with extraordinary uniformity, after the lapse of about an hour. Gabriel was greatly depressed. 
This debauch boded ill for that willful and fascinating mistress, whom the faithful man even now felt within him as the embodiment of all that was sweet and bright and hopeless. He put out the expiring lights, that the barn might not be endangered, closed the door upon the men in their deep and oblivious sleep, and went again into the lone night. A hot breeze, as if breathed from the parted lips of some dragon about to swallow the globe, fanned him from the south, while directly opposite in the north rose a grim misshapen body of cloud, in the very teeth of the wind. So unnaturally did it rise that one could fancy it to be lifted by machinery from below. Meanwhile the faint cloudlets had flown back into the south-east corner of the sky, as if in terror of the large cloud, like a young brood gazed in upon by some monster. Going on to the village, Oak flung a small stone against the window of Laban Tall's bedroom, expecting Susan to open it, but nobody stirred. He went round to the back door, which had been left unfastened for Laban's entry, and passed in to the foot of the staircase. "'Mrs. Tall, I've come for the key of the granary, to get at the rick-cloths,' said Oak in a stentorian voice. "'Is that you?' said Mrs. Susan Tall, half awake. "'Yes,' said Gabriel. "'Come along to bed, do, you draw-latchin' rogue, keeping a body awake like this.' "'It isn't Laban, tis Gabriel Oak. I want the key of the granary.' "'Gabriel, what in the name of fortune did you pretend to be Laban for?' "'I didn't. I thought you meant—' "'Yes, you did. What do you want here?' "'The key of the granary.' "'Take it, then. Tis on the nail.' People come and disturbing women at this time of night ought. Gabriel took the key without waiting to hear the conclusion of the tirade. Ten minutes later, his lonely figure might have been seen dragging four large waterproof coverings across the yard, and soon two of these heaps of treasure in grain were covered snug, two cloths to each. Two hundred pounds were secured. Three wheat stacks remained open, and there were no more cloths. Oak looked under the staddles and found a fork. He mounted the third pile of wealth and began operating, adopting the plan of sloping the upper sheaves one over the other, and in addition filling the interstices with the material of some untied sheaves. So far all was well. By his hurried contrivance Bathsheba's property in wheat was safe for, at any rate, a week or two, provided always that there was not much wind. Next came the barley. This was only possible to protect by systematic thatching. The time went on, and the moon vanished not to reappear. It was the farewell of the ambassador previous to war. The night had a haggard look, like a sick thing, and there came finally an utter expiration of air from the whole heaven in the form of a slow breeze, which might have been likened to a death. And now nothing was heard in the yard but the dull thuds of the beetle which drove in the spars, and the rustle of thatch in the intervals. End of chapter 36 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.